Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Kevin Oberteche, producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. Joining with us today, Dr. Ross McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research, and our graduate assistant, Joe Pereira. Okay, so uh, been a few things floating around with questionable policies of government, and um, I don't know, I think our general philosophy here at the Institute, uh, from both theoretical and empirical evidence, is that better to let people do their own thing than to have the uh, government intervene. And so um, the first case I wanted to pick on was uh, Trump was talking to the uh, some sort of auto workers group. It turned out to be a more of a non-union group than a union group. And so some of his comments were um, maybe questionable in different ways uh, because he was kind of promoting union uh, support or trying to garner union support, um, even though he was talking to more of a, a non-union crowd. But the main thing that troubled me the most was he kind of threw out a, uh, let's say, a bargaining chip or an offer to the unions to say, you know, if you guys get behind me, I'll put some terror on to protect U.S. auto work. Um, and so that was his chip that he threw out. And uh, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that he he was an economics major at Wharton uh, many moons ago, but he's not the first communist economics major. Uh, AOC uh, uh, is another one. And, and of course, Fidel Castro is kind of a famous economics major. So unfortunately, um, just because you've had some economics training, it doesn't mean it was good economics training because there, uh, we do study things like communism and other things. And if you maybe you were a struggling student or something. Um, if you didn't quite understand the, the benefits of, of freedom uh, and, and what that's done for the world. So that aside, uh, the thought of throwing tariffs out, you know, brings us right back to the 1970s. Like I thought we were well past, this is one of those policies that I thought we were well past. So uh, the history of U.S. automobiles um, was that Japan started being the latest, greatest thing with a low cost automobile that didn't break down uh, in the 70s. The Toyota Corolla, my dad happened to be a Toyota mechanic. So he was on the, the front lines, the blue collar lines of, of uh, Toyota's entry in. I, I think he graduated uh, about the time I was born. Um, so somewhere around 1970. And, and so uh, my first car was a Toyota. Um, and so these cars were just superior to American autos. And, and so over the course of the 70s, as Toyota was bringing them in, um, they started protecting U.S. autos. Um, and so eventually that started to break down. And the result of those protections breaking down is that we have an awesome automobile nowadays. Uh, the Through the 80s into the 90s, U.S. automobiles continued to compete better and better and better. And now, you know, th uh, Fords and GMs uh, do actually compete compete in other places around the world as well. And so um, when a tariff is put in, a tariff is a tax on imports. So in theory, when that Toyota reached the shores of uh, California at the, 
the LA port, then uh, they were required pay a tax. Now, how it's actually administered doesn't really matter. I'm probably not telling uh, the truth, nor do I know the truth of exactly how it's administered. But effectively, that's the same thing. And so if we tax uh, the Toyota um, 20% at the, at the border, then the uh, Japanese have to raise their price essentially to cover that cost of doing business. And so when it comes to the United States, it's going to be 20% higher than what it would have been had there not been this tax on the import. And so that then keeps prices within the United States for both Toyotas and Ford's, GMs, and Chryslers at this somewhat artificially high price through the tariff that was imposed on the good. And so what it does it do? Well, yes, it does keep a few more American jobs um, that would otherwise have people buying Toyotas instead of Fords. And so I guess that's the good part of it. But um, the lesson we learned from international trade is that when we do that, consumers are the losers. So consumers are buying overpriced cars, so to speak, uh, in the short run, uh, just with the price effect alone. And uh, in the longer run, uh, our U.S. autos aren't competing at the same level. Uh, the competition isn't there to keep them on their toes uh, when, when new uh, bells and whistles come and new conveniences, possibly new safety protections of airbags and uh, glass that doesn't shatter and um, uh, glass that's automatically tinting. I mean, all these innovations over time comes from a globally competitive marketplace. And so if we have that protection at the border, we're just not seeing the same level of, of rivalry and com competition coming from our, our businesses. And, and we know that America can compete well. And so, yes, there might be some short-term uh, job losses or otherwise if we, uh, you know, were um, to remove tariffs, as the case was. Uh, but the long-term benefits have just been so clear. And so to have Trump in 2023 bring up a tariff, uh, putting tariffs on uh, foreign automobiles is just absolutely insane to me. Um, but, you know, what am I to say? I'm just a free market economist. I don't know. Peter, where are you at on this? Yeah, so uh, I think, Russ, you even maybe uh, gave tariffs a little too much credit in that you said they create domestic jobs, and that's not even necessarily true. Uh, so certainly tariffs will create jobs uh, or will preserve some jobs that would otherwise be uh, disappeared, we could say, in the auto industry. Uh, but if you look at the whole economy, uh, when you have a relatively higher price for cars, which is what tariffs do, then uh, people have relatively smaller income. The car takes up more of their budget than it used to. If you have a smaller income for cars, uh, because of cars, that means you have a smaller income for other things. And so what that ends up leading us to is that, uh, you know, car the, the auto industry benefits, but all the other people in the United States, their incomes go down and there are less jobs because those incomes have gone down. And so we don't actually know how this like net result turns out for non-auto industry workers. And it goes even further than that. When you put tariffs on, for example, Japanese cars, Japanese citizens have less money. When Japanese citizens have less money, they best buy less products from America. And so again, there's other industries in the United States, domestic industries that are impacted negatively by uh, the tariff. How that washes out in terms of job numbers uh, is anyone's guess. I, I'd be shocked if we could even figure that out because uh, it deals with a lot of like counterfactual, what would the world have looked like if people had spent their money differently questions. Right. Um, but I, I agree with you, Russ, that uh, in terms of trying to justify tariffs on economic job protection, uh, benefit the USA grounds, uh, I, I don't think there's an argument there. It doesn't surprise me that Trump is saying this, but I, I don't see any good argument for it on uh, economic grounds. So, Justin, I kind of want to come towards you with a question of, uh, is there a moral aspect that my cold-hearted economist heart is uh, is overlooking in that uh, when we analyze uh, opening up to 
free trade, uh, let, let's just start from a position where we, let's say, had a tariff and we remove it. Um, that's going to hurt the U.S. auto makers. Um, and so our claim as economists is that the winner's wins outweigh the loser's losses. So in other words, uh, people who uh, lose their job, maybe the owners of the U.S. automobiles, uh, they're the losers in this when we remove the tariff and now we're buying more Toyotas, BMWs, and Mercedes. And so, and let's not forget Korea. Uh, we got uh, the good Hyundais and, and those other vehicles as well. Um, but the American people all save a little bit of money on their cars. And so the winner's wins are spread out over millions of people. Um, let me just pick out a number, uh, 100 million people, right? We got about 300, uh, 330 million people on our little island. Let's just say that there's 100 million people that save on automobile prices, right? In terms of lower price. But we've got uh, 300,000 auto workers that are going to be impacted by this through lower wages, job loss, whatever we want to call it. And so what the economist theory and empirical evidence shows is that the uh, the wins by the consumer, the 100 million consumers have lower prices that outweigh the job loss and wage freezes or whatever you want to call it, the losses to the 100,000 auto workers. And so from a moral standpoint, uh, is there something I'm overlooking that uh, it's okay? We should look out for the 100,000 over the interest of the 100 million. How are you making those interpersonal comparisons of utility again? <laughs> Yeah, so like uh, exactly one amendment I would offer to what Russ is saying is that the winners wins in dollars outweigh the losers losses in dollars. Yeah, but I I would I would agree. Yeah, we're not in utility. We I, are in dollars. I would agree that we can't translate this in well being uh, without making. Yeah. So if it's not a claim about well being, then yeah, you're going to have a moral problem, right? And even if it is a claim about well being, you're still going to have a moral problem. Um, what you're giving is a utilitarian argument, right? That uh, we ought to do what maximizes the amount of well being, or you even worse, just what maximizes the amount of dollar gains, right? Where that can be like some kind of uh, uh, proxy for well-being. Um, and um, I think there are just a lot of cases where we don't accept that gains in well-being by the many uh, in aggregate, um, though, you know, if we could measure it in aggregate, they would outweigh the gains or the losses um, that are suffered by, you know, very few people. Um, we still don't think it's a moral thing to do. So, uh, you know, there are classic cases like, uh, well, um, you know, in the like the trolley example or whatever, the mm -hmm. second part of the trolley problem where you can push somebody off the bridge in order to stop the trolley. Um, this is usually just taken as an example of like, yeah, uh, we don't think it's okay to make one person die in that case. So um, if it's a moral argument that you're trying to make and not an economic one, then I think you still have uh, some work to do. Um, I think yeah. maybe. I mean, the, I, well, I think that's a good point. Uh, that's why I wanted to tease it out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think generally generally uh the best like way to handle this sort of argument uh is to ask people who support tariffs what their goal by the tariff right and so if we say our goal is something like uh you know the well-being of people in the United States it's like well how are we measuring well-being are we measuring it in terms of dollars because if that's the case then you know this means of tariffs is not sufficient for the the ends of the well-being you're interested in we could do jobs but uh, again like the jobs thing kind of ends up being a wash too uh we gain some jobs in the auto 
industry, we lose some jobs in the auto industry and other places. And so I think challenging like this specific thing that's being advocated for is probably the most powerful tool that an economist has means ends analysis. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I, I think that um, it's difficult to, to have much conversation past that. So can I throw one further wrench in the um, argument, which is something I heard recently, um, and it was about manufacturing. And it was about, um, I think this uh, is something that like Tim Cook said about why he manufactures Apple products in China. And um, there were a bunch of responses from uh, smaller people who ran smaller companies too. And they said that, um, oh yeah, the reason they do manufacturing in China is because they're just way better at it. Not that it's ju- not that it's necessarily just cheaper, but they have to answer fewer questions and um, dealing with manufacturers in the United States. That seems to be a kind of knowledge that has been lost um, in the sense that um, there might be some kind of on the job knowledge. And this is something that I think you might find in, you know, like Hayek, um, that uh, there is knowledge about how to do things that isn't just logarithmic. Um, and that when you export all those kinds of job, all that kind of process somewhere else, um, it's not the case that you could just bring those jobs back if those prices got raised by, um, you know, say a, a foreign comp- uh, country that you were an adversary with. Um, so that while that might be a problem with China, it arguably wasn't like with Japan in the 70s or something, right? Um, it's not like, you know, we were worried about uh, a potential military conflict with Japan in the 70s. Um, but people are very worried about a military conflict with China. And that's why people worry about um, all our semiconductors being manufactured in Taiwan. Um, not just because like, oh, now we're not going to you know be able to eat those tasty semiconductors. Uh, but um, it seems like semiconductors are a capital good that's required for the production of almost anything. Um, and so, um, you know, if we assume that um, China is you know, deviously evil or something, which I don't think they are, but uh, if they were, then uh, that might be a worry too an additional worry. So not just the, um, so this is the kind of argument about uh, law, permanent or loss of a kind of knowledge that it's hard to get back. Yeah, okay. I, I think I have something to say about that, but probably should wait till after the break. Okay, that sounds like a good cliffhanger. And I also want to bring up kind of some standard arguments back to the moral part of uh, being able to maybe use some of the uh, winner's wins uh, to help out those who got harmed. So we'll be back with those thoughts in just a bit. Auto University has an exciting new major. PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete, leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. 
If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, so let's uh, continue on with our cliffhanger here. Uh, Peter, you wanted to jump in on this knowledge angle? Yeah, so I think Justin is making two steps. It's maybe one argument, but the argument has two steps, excuse me. Uh, the first is to say that like it's harder maybe to restart something once it's gone. And I don't think that by itself is like an argument that's like particularly different than the argument that's already being had. It's like, uh, it may be the case uh, that like once somebody else starts taking the auto industry manufacturing stuff over that like it becomes increasingly harder for us to get it back but uh again that kind of fits under the original umbrella of like losing it in the first place uh just might not be a big issue right and trying to keep it might cause a bigger issue than uh trying to bring it in now a second step that people will make with this argument is losing the knowledge is important for a reason other than just preserving the jobs at some future time which i think that argument by itself uh, doesn't really add anything uh but it's important because we have like enemies abroad and it might be that beyond just like economic health there's some value to us having the knowledge associated with manufacturing uh, in and of itself, right? And usually that's like linked to military. So we don't want our enemy to be the only one who has access to, uh, you know, knowledge on how to make the semiconductors or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a... I mean, a, that's a national security. Yeah, that, 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 that's a better argument uh, than one about preserving jobs, I think, uh, pretty significantly. Uh, my response to that is I agree with it. To, like, to a certain extent, it's not assailable. To a certain extent, like, yeah, it might be that we have worked now, like uh, it's totally possible that China takes over the semiconductor industry and then stops giving them to us, right? Like that could happen. Uh, but on the flip side, we also have to recognize the harms done by trying to stop that in terms of national security. And so, a, it's been long recognized that uh, trade between nations kind of intertangles our economic interests to the point where people are less willing to attack and destroy each other. And so, you know, if America disappeared tomorrow, China would actually be in a lot of trouble. Uh, a lot of their economy depends on us. And then, kind of related and secondary, uh, you know. To trade in general just fosters peace between people, fosters communication, uh, you know, allows people to have cultural exchanges they wouldn't otherwise. And so this, you know, idea of like, let's fix this national security problem by removing trade. Uh, when you remove trade, you remove sort of like the, the peace creation that comes along with trade. Trade encourages peaceableness. And when you lose it, you lose some of that encouragement. Uh, so yeah, I, I think Justin's national security argument, it's not something that you can defeat a priori necessarily, but I do think that there's like other considerations that go along with it. Peter, you gave me a thought that I had never thought before of today versus that argument maybe even 30, 40 years ago that trade helps keep peace and, and your that argument still holds in terms of, uh, you know, trade is beneficial, mutually beneficial, right? So even though I hate you, I still want to trade with you because mm -hmm. I'm better off, you're better off, etc. But I think a part of that argument used to be that we had to relate with each other. We had to communicate sure. to do a buy and a sell. And today with today's computers and, um, you know, all of us being, including in foreign countries as well as ourselves, into our phones and into our the more inward we turn, that part of the trade argument, I think, has diminished maybe even to zero, that everything's electronic, everything, uh, there's no person-to-person -person deal, a handshake, so to speak, that there would have been maybe even 30, 40 years ago when people uh, engaged in global trade. So I think that's something that's fundamentally changed. I'm not sure it, it diminishes the ar overall argument too much, but it um, seems like that's different now. Justin, you got something? Yeah, yeah. so I think I, um, I think I agree with um, what Peter said. Uh, I used to be of uh, the opinion that you could kind of do the a priori thing 
leaders saying that you can't do. Um, and just a priori, know that um, the benefits are going to um, outweigh the costs for all kinds of um, trade. And um, I now think that uh, that relies on ignoring the kind of costs um, that I was talking about earlier. And I do think that in most, in almost all cases, um, the benefits do outweigh the costs. Uh, but I think that what I previously thought just assigned a probability of zero to something that I don't think has a probability of zero. Right. And that yeah. when that probability isn't zero, its cost is really, really high. Right. Um, and uh, so I do think there are some cases in which um, it, it might be reasonable um, to do that. And then yeah. just to point out like what Peter was saying about um, uh, trade making you less likely to uh, go to war with each other. Like people, there's a famous dictum in like political science. And of course it's wrong because it's in political science that democracies never go to war with each other. Right. <laughs> right. And the response was, yeah, well, um, you know, countries that have McDonald's don't go war, go to war with each other either. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I think both of those are kind of true, but um, it is true that countries that are good trading partners don't usually go to war with each other. And that was one of the reasons I think a lot of people got, were so, uh, or at least one of the reasons why I was opposed to like slapping Russia with sanctions. Uh, because when you slap a, a, a country like Russia with sanctions, um, you incentivize them to organize their structure of production such that like they don't have to trade with us. And then that makes the cost of going to war lower for yeah. them. Um, because you were essentially already declaring economic war against them, right? right. Um, so um, that's another reason why, uh, you know, we ought to be very, very careful with uh, slapping tariffs where we do, because it, it it decreases the cost of actual physical combat. Yeah. And, and I think uh, evidence of, you know, Putin's now done his thing with Ukraine. Uh, China continues to be a threat anyway towards uh, Taiwan and made moves on Hong Kong. And so uh, we're seeing, uh, let's just say, open trade or the benefits of trade not deterring uh, some of that violence or um, negative action. So I, I've kind of come full circle too on, on the uh, some of the national security argument. I, I mean, I would have never dreamed that uh, the supply chain had such a big impact that, that COVID showed and along with other things. So um, having some of the, not being completely dependent uh, on other nations for some of those goods uh, that like you say, semiconductors are, are key. It's amazing that they go into everything now. And so um, more so than ever, uh, I thought, you know, I was on the path when I was a 20 something graduate student and, and starting my, you know, teaching that, hey, the, the world's just going more and more to global trade and harmony. And and uh, that's just clearly not the case in the last five to 10 years. So I've kind of changed my tune on the national security argument as well. Um, but that still doesn't take away from us looking at the trade-offs, right? That, that it's not free to say, oh, let's just start making semiconductors. No, it's, it's actually a costly venture. But as you pointed out, if the probability is growing beyond zero and the result is catastrophe, then that's, even though it's costly, it's worth doing to some degree. But that's a political football of to what degree is appropriate. Some people are going to say the nth degree and other people are going to say, ah, we can just do a little bit. So the battle continues. Yeah. And it is important to highlight that uh, I don't think any of this, this argument applies in the auto street. Like uh, Russian yeah. and Chinese cars mm -hmm. are not really uh, big in the last time I checked. And right. uh, it's true we could maybe lose still just in 
license manufacturing knowledge argument could still apply. But again, that doesn't become a problem until uh, you don't have access to an ally that has that knowledge, right? If Japan is always going to be our ally, uh, the same way that Kentucky is always going to be the ally of Missouri, uh, then we really don't have to worry about like lost knowledge. Yeah. Um, but but uh, sir, again, still applies to other places, probably. Yeah, and a, a couple other comments on kind of that moral aspect that I wanted to bring up was uh, with the winner's wins being bigger than the loser's losses, uh, you know, if we have appropriate, if we recognize that these are 99% anyway, some sort of uh, shorter term losses, I don't know what I mean by shorter term, but maybe somebody gets harmed for two years until they get back on their feet and whatever. So we have uh, appropriate safety nets in place with uh, unemployment insurance and other aid programs. Maybe there's even, and I know the United States had one at one time, I don't remember what it was called, but some sort of, uh, you got harmed by international trade, here's some extra funds set aside uh, for assistance. And um, so that's kind of how we handled that moral aspect, um, recognizing that ultimately long-term this creates uh, wins uh, for the nation and the people of the nation as we reorganize resources into what we have an advantage in. Um, I also wanted to bring up with Trump throwing up, they're throwing up, <laughs> throwing out the tariff today that people don't think about the other Americans that will be negatively impacted. And so for, again, when we impose a tariff, we're unraveling just the opposite. Uh, and so what about the parts distributor that specializes in foreign car parts, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Or uh, the Toyota dealer uh, with a dealership that's um, going to be declining in sales. And so it's that person's uh, family and the salespeople's family and the mechanic's family. And so um, when we uh, save the auto workers, so to speak, we never talk about the declining industries that have emerged over time through the global trade yeah. patterns. And um, so that, of course, Trump's not going to bring up... Um, um, economists will bring it up in a paper or something and then nobody will read it or know about it. Um, and so that maybe that's part of us getting the word out with our little part with this podcast. Uh, uh, but we know we're not hitting more than a drop of water in the bucket either uh, with us bringing stuff like that up. But I, I hope people can start to recognize that there are negative effects internally in the United States that would happen directly because of imposing tariffs to protect the auto workers. Yeah, Russ, I think your compensation scheme idea that you brought up actually kind of brings us to the example in which like it seems the most obvious that tariffs are like really bad and sugar farming is one example of this yeah. in sugar tariffs where uh, the math's been done by economists that if we just took the extra money that people spend on sugar every year because of sugar tariffs and gave that to the people who benefit from sugar tariffs in the US yeah. we would actually still have some money left over <laughs> uh, and so it would be cheaper to just give money to like these US sugar farmers uh, rather than subsidize their industry uh, and so there's like the only person who gains from this uh, sugar tariff on net actually is like the politicians who like ha and bureaucrats who have jobs because Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Uh, and you know any other person who kind of glad hands their way in on the tariff deal. And I'll just so. I'll just add cotton is the same way. So okay. uh, Africa is a much better place to make cotton, but our cotton growers end up getting the benefit of these tariffs to the tune of like one job is 400000 like you were saying. Mm. So we yeah. could easily remove the tariffs and compensate the workers that are working in Georgia on, on cotton. And who we're really protecting is some probably some fairly wealthy people. Yeah. Uh, by having that in place. And so that's just uh, should be easy to disregard that, but it's not because the politicians play the, we got yeah, Justin. So this is a really interesting dichotomy between the problem that um, of tariffs and the usual moral problems with utilitarianism, right? Because the problem cases in utilitarianism where one person bears the costs and the benefits are diluted among a bunch of people, those are usually cases where they can't be compensated, right? Mm. Because it's usually like a death or something like that. Okay, yeah, it's um, probably problem now. Yeah. yeah, 
so um when you have a pro when you have a situation like this where it's like no this is a situation that's potentially pareto superior and we actually could make it pareto superior by uh moving around some of the money afterwards that actually does get rid of the problem um mm -hmm. in a way that the problem can't be evaporated with the moral problems with um yeah. with making this kind of judgment yeah that's a great point so um it is harder though oftentimes you get the uh choices of well we can have this parade potentially pareto superior outcome or just nothing right yeah. and they don't take that further step of no we can actually move stuff around and make it potentially pareto superior or yeah, make it actually pareto superior yeah. and, and the problem that comes up is we don't have let's say well-defined property rights to the status quo i'm an auto worker i'm making seventy thousand dollars a year the year tariffs taking away my job i'm hurt i'm laid off let's have the uh parts distributor guy who's benefiting pay part of my compensation right like how would you find have the knowledge for all the indirect effects of those who are benefiting be able to truly compensate the auto worker and so there's um uh you just have to do it generically with the way we do it with where we collect some taxes from everybody and help compensate the loser uh, but in reality if there was well-defined property rights we're back to a coast um uh, solution where the two parties could trade hey you're hurting me you're benefiting but i'll pay you uh this amount to offset your harm and then there's a win-win and then the very first objection i raised was like what are you guys doing comparisons of intersubjective utility like is that how you're making these public policy uh solutions when uh you know maybe you guys don't even think that that's possible in the first place yes. um and i think that the um the response that one could give to this objection is something like what other metric would you like me to use um we can't there is no ruler for welfare that we mm -hmm. could use um to accurately measure everybody's welfare um and then uh, aggregate them. Um, if what you're saying is like money doesn't do it, what does? And the answer is, of course, like, well, we don't. Um, the thing about using cost benefit analysis is that it seems more fair than the alternatives that are available. Mm. You don't have to say that it's perfect or that it measures everything perfectly, um, but it does seem to be fair in a way that um, the alternatives aren't. And especially if you're willing to do a kind of compensatory mechanism afterwards, um, then though it might not be perfect, it does seem to be the least bad of the methods for making <laughs> these kinds of uh, decisions in that it seems to um, do the best job of measuring what's very difficult to measure yeah. um, and, uh, you know, try to treat everybody um, at least as fairly as possible. Uh, yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, we, we use economics to identify where the winner's wins would outweigh the loser's losses, which allows us to at least approximate some trade-off to offset the welfare aspect that we know the direction it moves we just don't know we can't quantify it yeah right? and maybe maybe sometimes it won't make sense to make all these uh adjustments after the fact right but that's a different question um so my, but... my point that i wanted to bring up related to that though because i agree with you there is that we also use economics to say that trump's thing of imposing a tariff would be stupid because the loser's losses would be bigger than the winner's wins and then we have nothing to truly compensate around and we'd be wrecking things even more by trying to compensate the uh, losers when there's not benefits to actually spread around that would work see what i mean that that i i think i'm trying to 
boost us economists up a little bit, that at least we can have things identified that, yep, imposing a tariff on U.S. autos is stupid because the loser's losses are bigger than the winner's uh, wins. Um, so let's not do, let's not head that direction. And what it does is it'll push us towards freedom. If we always are looking for more uh, where the winner, where there's mutually beneficial wins, where the, there's overall wins, I think that will push us towards freedom rather than uh, restriction. Yeah, the only difficulty with that is like we, and I think this comes to a different podcast, but like you were talking about how there's not well-defined private property rights over like the status quo. And so like one of the ways that this argument, Russ, is leveraged is in for eminent domain uh, is they say things like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, your house is worth $300,000. We're going to compensate you a million dollars and we're going to take it because we're going to make more than a million dollars. So our wins outweigh your loss. Yeah. And the person will say, no, wait, the stat, my house isn't worth $300,000 to me. It's priceless. It's $2 million. It's $10 million. Mm -hmm. And what they say million. is, uh, well, actually, the government determines the status quo in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, so that fixes our status quo, not you. <laughs> uh, and so like the same thing can happen in the auto industry, right? It's like, oh, well, my job is not worth just $60,000 to me. It's worth $5 million. To, it's priceless, right? I have so many memories in this company. Yeah. And so I agree, Russ, that you like uh, economic, and I actually agree with Justin Raymond, economics gets us closer than anything else to being able to, you know, compare parties. Uh, nothing can, I think, take us all the way there because I, I don't believe in interpersonal utility comparisons. I, I think um, I, I think utility is inaccessible to us, but there are better and worse ways to get close to it. Tell me if I'm pushing this too far, though, but I think uh, using eminent domain is the government using force causing the bad thing that you just described. Well, it depends on who owns but, it. If if the government actually owns that land, they're not using force. They're defending their property. Well, so, in the United States, eminent domain is taking a private property. So, But but legally. So it's the government. I it's no, the government, I, I get it. It's the government. Saying, I'm just saying, but it, but it is them taking action that's more restrictive. My point is that... Well, it's more restrictive to the person, but less restrictive to them who are the true owners legally once eminent domain happens. And so if the person stays, they're committing aggression because the government's legally taken it. See, the problem is economics doesn't define who owns the property because it's a value-free science and all of the value is hidden in who owns the property. If we're allowed to say that other people own property, then staying becomes aggression, you know, taking it back becomes defending. Once the court case happens, the U.S. government becomes the legal owner. Them removing someone is just them defending their own property, right? But status quo was the, the government had granted private ownership. No, you're you're right. But, okay. the, like, okay. but like you said, there's no preference for the status quo, right? Like the, in economics or, or anything. It's like the status quo is there, that a person has a job in the auto industry, right? I guess all I'm saying is if there was property right before, the government had established their chain. The government is changing it through force with eminent domain. I mean, it, again, like the, the government would say, yeah, the, your private property was when you made the sale, you agreed to all these laws. And one of the laws was that we could take it from you. And so again, like there's no there's no unambiguous way to say that. Like we know for certain who the unless you use like some sort of natural law thing, we don't know who the property owner is without some like external reference. God owns it. I guess this is faith in economics. We'll we'll wrap this one up with God owns everything, and we're just uh, leasing uh, the the stuff while we're here. Um, okay, so I do gotta just say the one little thing that I think maybe you'll agree with, but um, the win wins when government restrictions are in place, the win wins will come from them relaxing those rather than imposing more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and that that's I mean, all I, 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 I agree say with is that, that. I, in terms of moving towards freedom, I think economists identifying the win wins will help us move towards a better position of freedom rather than oppression by the state. That is, in my opinion, correct. All right. Well, gosh, that's amazing. Okay, so <laughs> this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Auto University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. Uh, please push this out on your social
social media or just email it to your friends and family if you think they'd like to listen. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.